Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Today we are revisiting an old series we did here at Cornerstone in 2018. Uh, that sermon series was called The Sunday Rhythms. And in that series, our attempt was to consider the various aspects of our worship service. We looked at various rhythms, the things we engage in week after week. We looked at the rhythm of singing, gathering, praying, repenting, welcoming, listening, and dismissing. And the reason we did that was to orient those in our church to understand why we are doing what we do when we worship. Now, I'm not going to cover these again. If you are interested in hearing those, uh, you can go on our website under the sermon archive, look up January and February of 2018. But in this shorter summer series, what I want to do is cover some of the aspects that we didn't cover the first time we looked at the series. And so in this series, we're going to look at four rhythms, the rhythm of approaching, the rhythm of giving, the rhythm of standing, and the rhythm of feasting. So in short, we're going to look at uh, why we do silent preparation the way we do, why we do the collection of tithes and offerings, why we stand for the hearing of God's word, and why we take the Lord's Supper. And so with that, I invite you to stand with me now. Standing is an act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy word. Hear it now, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and let's pray once more. Gracious Father, we ask your blessing upon the preaching of your word. We ask your blessing upon the listening of your word. And we pray your blessing upon uh, the living out of your very word. Do this all, Lord, uh, for your glory. Do it for our good. Form us into worshipers who worship you in spirit and truth. Form us into worshipers who give you the glory and honor that your name so deserves. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, and in that series of books, he wrote a specific one called The Silver Chair. And in The Silver Chair, uh, he tells of a little girl named Jill who wanders into Narnia. And in Narnia, she is totally parched. She is thirsty. She is looking for water, and she comes upon a stream, and there on the stream is Aslan the lion, whom she's meeting for the first time. Aslan invites her, if you're thirsty, you may drink. But Jill, of course, is hesitant. Now, this is what C.S. Lewis goes on to write. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. I read this section of The Silver Chair because I think C.S. Lewis captures here in the figure Aslan a very biblical view of God. Our God 
is not safe. He is not the tame, controllable God that we want him to be. He is mighty, powerful, and dare I say, even dangerous if we approach him in the wrong way. Now, when we say God is dangerous, we don't mean he's dangerous in that he's unfair and unpredictable, but he's dangerous because he is righteous and just and absolutely holy, and we are not. And yet at the same time, it's only in drawing near to God that we can find and have life. He is the stream of living water. In him alone do we find true life, everlasting, eternal life. And so we need to come to him. There is no other stream. And therein lies the dilemma. God, holy, other, just, pure, us, sinful, wretched, fallen and frail. It is right for us to approach God in fear. In fact, our approach should be full of fear and trembling in his presence. But let me ask you this question. When you approach God, as you've gathered this morning to worship, do you come with a holy fear? Do you reverently and rightly tremble in his presence? You know, the great prophet Moses was at the foot of Mount Sinai, and he goes up the mountain to meet with God in the Old Testament. He stood before the Lord, and here's what the author of Hebrews tells us about that. Listen to what he writes. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. This is written about Moses as he came before God. Now, we no longer gather before God at Mount, at Mount Sinai, but we still gather in God's presence. That when we assemble as God's people, God is far more than just in our minds for us to think about. God is actually in our midst. He is with us present. And so Hebrews 12 goes on to say, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels and festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. If it's true that in worship, we gather before God almighty himself, that should change something about the way we approach worship. The Sunday rhythm I want to talk about is the rhythm of approaching. And we practice this rhythm very specifically in our service with silent preparation. Why do we begin here? Why is silent preparation so central and important to our order of worship? So let's look at that by now considering our passage. Verses 28 and 29 exhort us like this. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a very important place to start. When we gather to worship God, who is the God we are worshiping? What is he like? And we tend to think of God the way we want to think of God. God is a cuddly old man. He's a grandfather who wants to love us like grandchildren. He sees past our faults. He just wants to spoil gifts on us. Some of us see God as a friend. He just wants to be best buds. He's just so glad you woke up and made it and are spending some time with him. But the author of Hebrews is saying, no, 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 no. Let me tell you who God is. 
God is a consuming fire. Now, there's a bit of a, a part of us that, that feels uncomfortable with that language. Well, that's such Old Testament language, but no, consider the context. This is a New Testament letter. The author of Hebrews has just made a case throughout the previous 11 chapters that it's through Jesus that we are washed clean, that all of the Old Testament sacrificial system, the ceremonial laws, the priesthood is fulfilled in Christ. So all of the Old Testament fulfilled in Christ, and yet he still says God is a consuming fire, which means that even the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done, it doesn't reduce, it doesn't erase this truth. Our God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4, 24 says, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isaiah 33 says, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? And who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? Now, the author very intentionally reaches back into the Old Testament and he uses this description. He pulls it out. God is a consuming fire for a reason. Now, it's easy for us to envision God as a fire. Fire is incredibly good and beneficial for us. Fire gives light. Fire provides warmth. Fire protects us from predators. These are all good things. And so, yes, God is a fire. God lights our dark path. God warms us in cold nights. God keeps danger and evil away. But the author comes along and he says, whoa, 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 whoa. I think you misunderstood. I'm not saying that God is a fire. I'm saying he is a consuming fire. He's saying you shouldn't think of God like the flames on a birthday candle, one that you can blow out with your breath or snuff out with your fingertips. The author wants us to envision a God of high intensity with powerful heat radiating off of him. him. He's He's not a flickering flame on a matchstick, but he is a raging flame from a forest fire. He is the type of fire that burns hot against anyone and everyone who dare approach him unprepared and without adequate protection. Now, why use this image of God? It's to help us remember that as we come to approach him with our worship, we are coming before the consuming fire. If you want to come out of life, you have to come prepared. Consider this, when there's a fire, firemen, they bravely and heroically rushed out and go fight the fire. But firefighters never show up unprepared, do they? Some of you may be familiar with those uh, calendars that show firemen, and they're always shirtless. (laughs) But firemen never show up to fight a fire using only their biceps and their chiseled abs. What do firemen do? The allowance. The alarm sounds, the alert goes off, and then they take the time to prepare themselves to approach the flames. They put on fire-resistant gear, helmets, goggles, gloves, boots. Why? Why do they take the time to do this? Why don't they just head out? It's urgent. There's a fire. Why don't they just leave with whatever they're wearing? And it's because they know and respect what they're approaching. They know the power of what they're going to face and fight. They accurately know And so they readily prepare. In the same way, Hebrews is exhorting us to prepare ourselves when we come before God, a consuming fire. 
And because this is true, we approach him and we worship him with reverence and awe, the scripture says. So let me ask you a simple question. You've gathered here to worship. Some of you are worshiping with us online. How have you prepared yourself in your approach to God this morning? In what ways are you making sure to bring acceptable worship to him? In what ways are you making sure that your heart is coming with reverence and awe? You see, whether we realize it or not, all of us are engaging in rhythms. Some of these rhythms are intentional and purposeful, and others are just assumed and unthought out. But the rhythms by which we engage in worship, by which we approach worship, they form and they fashion our attitude toward this very service, toward God. Coming in late, week after week, becomes a rhythm. Stumbling and rushing into service as the prayer is ending and the first song begins becomes a rhythm. Looking at your phone until the presider gets up and calls for your attention and then putting it away becomes a rhythm. You already have rhythms in the way you approach God. What I'm calling on you to do is actively engage in and practice new rhythms, intentional rhythms. And so in our order of service, what do we always begin with? And it's not call to worship. But if some of you didn't even know we had a call to worship, but it's the silent preparation. This moment is not a precursor to worship. It's part of the worship we offer God. The silence and the stillness by which we sit under the majesty and the wonder and the awe of God is our very worship. We stop everything we're doing and we adopt a posture of reverence and awe before the consuming fire. Here's the problem. A lot of people tend to think of this silent preparation sort of like uh, the trailers to when you go watch a movie in the theaters. And if you miss the trailers, if you're running late and you miss the trailers, yeah, oh, shucks, I, I won't get a good seat. I was looking forward to that trailer. But you're not totally bummed out because you've still made the movie. But silent preparation is not like a movie trailer. Silent preparation is the start of the movie. It is worship. Have you ever seen any of the Star Wars movies? Right? If you have, you're familiar with this concept because every Star Wars film begins with an opening crawl. You know it. The theater goes quiet in a galaxy far, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then what happens? Cue John Williams' music. Dun, 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 and then the yellow script comes in yellow text and you're oriented, you're introduced to the plot of the movie. The crawl is part of the movie. To miss this opening is to be missing the movie. And you know this is true. If you've ever gone to see a Star Wars film on opening night, the theater gets absolutely silent as the text appears. Nobody dares talk lest you have a death wish. And I know firsthand, I attended episode seven, the highly anticipated episode seven, The Force Awakens, with one of our Cornerstone members, actually. And the, as soon as, you know, a long time ago, a galaxy far, far away, it was so quiet, dead quiet. You could actually hear him whimpering and crying in his excitement over the film. That's how serious the tone was. We know this is not something to be missed. Well, dear friends, in the same way, the silent preparation is not an optional part of this worship service. It is worship. 
It sets the context of what follows. It sets the tone. Our worship service is uh, structured under five M's. There's a movement to it. God's majesty. We receive God's mercy. We're welcomed as God's members. We then hear God's message, and we're sent out on God's mission. Silent preparation makes us stop, and before anything else, it orients us to this fact. God is majestic. He is beautiful. He is excellent. He is glorious. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Silent preparation reminds us you are not taking God and putting him under a microscope by which you are taking something small and trying to make it bigger. Silent preparation is saying you are viewing God through a telescope by which you are trying to capture the grandness, the excellencies, and magnificence of God. Week after week, the rhythm of approaching is vital to form the habits of our hearts and even the expectations of our worship. You got to know this. God's not entering our presence. We are entering God's presence. And as we do, we come with one desire, one prayer, and that's found in verse 28. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. The time of silent preparation is a time for you to prepare your heart and ask the Lord, Lord, would you accept this worship? Because worship is for you. It's a prayer prayer, something like this. God, make me more concerned with your pleasure in this worship than my pleasure out of this worship. God, make me so burdened to bless you more than I am concerned with getting a blessing. God, make me far more preoccupied with what I can bring you this morning than with what I can receive from you this morning. So weekly, we approach God with some version of this prayer. And we're asking God, let this worship be acceptable to you. We want it to be about you, not about me. You know, in our congregation, by God's grace, there have been so many engagements and marriages recently. Now, when a guy thinks about buying an engagement ring for the woman he loves, what does he begin to do? He begins to fish for information and throws out a little couple of questions. You watch a movie, oh, that ring looks nice. And then you see what she's thinking, see if it's ugly or not. And you make notes, you see her reaction, you make comments. You throw out ideas. You make notes of her response, and then you do your research. You learn, oh, ring size is not just small, medium, large. Ring size are actual numbers. <laughs> you learn that diamonds are, are about far more than just carrots. There's a cut and color and clarity. And you learn, oh, these are the four C's in mind. And unfortunately, cheap is not a fifth C <laughs> that women want. But ultimately, when a man purchases a ring to propose, he's not getting what is most acceptable to him, what's pleasing to him. He gets the ring she wants, a ring that fits her finger, her style. You know, if I had gotten Eunice a ring that fits my sausage fingers, it would not have fit her fingers. It would have been an engagement toe ring, which would have been disgusting. So you have to think, this is not about me. What I'm bringing, the criteria is not what's acceptable to me, it's what's acceptable to you. When we approach God in worship, we're asking, is this what God is pleased to accept? Not, is this what I'm pleased to give? And all of the Bible, at least here in in Hebrews 12, it's instructing us. It's very simple. It doesn't tell you how long the sermon should be. It doesn't tell you how many songs to sing, how many times to pray. The offering of worship that's acceptable to God we see here is this, with reverence and awe. 
coming before God with a posture and willing to stand before him in amazement and adoration and wonder and humility, ready to esteem him and exalt him and extol him. So then our worship, every aspect of our worship service is done with the aim toward reverence, not relevance. Relevance puts you dead center. Relevance is saying, what do you like? What do you find good? What do you enjoy? Reverence is saying, no, God is at the center and everything else revolves around him. Reverence in worship means how from beginning to the end, our eyes are lifted off of ourselves and unto the Lord. That's the reverence God calls for in worship. The reverence by which we come and stand before him. This is the way we need to worship God. And yet in us, in us all is this sin that desires just such a consumeristic perspective. What does this mean for me? We leave these halls going, oh, I was so blessed. But how many times have you left this hall going, Lord, were you blessed? And the only way that sin in our heart, that consumeristic attitude is changed and transformed is when we understand the gospel. The best way to worship is a worship produced and shaped by the gospel. Because the gospel doesn't just change your behavior. It doesn't change just your lifestyle. It changes the way you worship. Friends, when you're so filled with gratitude, when you become... uh, so filled with the grace of God and you live in thanksgiving to him, you start becoming radically concerned with what pleases God and not what you can profit out of worship. This is actually the logic that the author uses. Look with me at verse 28, and here's what we read. The author says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Worship, he says, arises from a grateful response to God, a grateful response to his grace in the gospel. And the gospel promise here is not simply forgiveness of sins, which is amazing and great. It's not simply eternal life, which is amazing and great. It's not simply a reconciled relationship with God, which is amazing and great. The gospel promise here is that you will receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved. Jesus himself promised in Matthew 25, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. The gospel is the promise, the assurance that one day you will receive this kingdom and one day you will be received into this kingdom. And this will happen not by your efforts and not by your merits, but through Christ's. And that's why gratitude is the appropriate response. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it, but in Christ, we have it. In Christ, it is yours. Because of Jesus, you belong to a kingdom that's immovable and everlasting and enduring and secured and promised and guaranteed. And your place in this kingdom is established by God. You're not in the kingdom as a servant, but you are in the kingdom as a son. You're not in the kingdom as a doorman, but you are in the kingdom as a daughter. Through Christ, you are not just brought near, you're brought in. A few weeks ago, I stopped by the Lansdale Public Library and I saw this book for sale, a book, uh, a red book, had a yellow dog on the front called Marley and Me. 
Now, it's a book that uh, I've heard about. I know there's a movie based off of it, but if you know anything about me, you know I have a hardened heart toward dogs. It doesn't make me less human. It's just I'm, I'm a bit suspicious of these creatures. Uh, but something in me told me to get this book. And so I bought the book, and every day I just read a few pages out of it. And there's this one chapter in the book where the author uh, tells a story about how his dog, Marley, a yellow, big yellow lab, was actually cast in a movie. And so that day of shooting, they go to uh, take the dog and drop him off at the filming location. Um, and he's there with his family, and there are all these barricades set up, and everyone kind of wants to, you know, see some celebrities, and so everyone's stopping by and going slow, and the police are redirecting traffic, and he pulls up, and this is, just listen to what he writes. It says this, we inched forward in traffic, and when we finally got up to the officer, I leaned out the window and said, we need to get through. No one gets through, he said. Keep moving. Let's go. We're with the cast, I said. He eyed us skeptically. I said, move it, he barked. Our dog is in the film, I said. Suddenly, he looked at me with new respect. You have the dog, he said. I have the dog, I said. Marley, the dog. He turned around. He's got the dog, he shouted to a cop a half block down. Marley, the dog. And that cop in turn yelled to someone else. He's got the dog. Marley, the dog's here. Let him through, a third officer shouted from a distance. Let him through, the second officer echoed. The officer moved the barricade and waved us through. Right this way, he said politely. I felt like royalty. As we rolled past them, he said once again, as if he couldn't quite believe it, he's got the dog. And when I read this just a few weeks ago, it stuck out to me. Because immediately it made me think of our entrance into this unshakable, immovable kingdom of God. You see, left to ourselves, we would be standing at the gates of heaven. There would be no way past the barricades. We had no reason to go and we had no right to go in. Our righteousness wasn't nearly enough what God required. And in fact, our sins redirected us to another destination. Through Jesus Christ through his death for your sins and his righteousness given to you, the right now is yours. Knowing Jesus, having Jesus, that's how you get in. One day, friends, you will be ushered into the kingdom of God. The barricades will be moved for you and the way will be made all because you said, I know Jesus. I'm here with Jesus. And at that, you'll be far more than just waved in. You'll be welcomed in, not like royalty, but as royalty. Sons and daughters of the Most High King of Kings. If you know this is what's waiting for you in heaven, that nothing can shake this kingdom to which you belong. Nothing can revoke your access. Nothing can overturn your welcome. The author says, if you have this assurance in the gospel, let us be grateful, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. When gratitude fills your heart, worship is the right response. When gospel promises fill your heart, acceptable worship to God becomes your desire. When kingdom hope fills your heart, you approach the king with reverence and awe. And somehow, somehow, when you're responding out of gospel gratitude, reverent worship isn't stuffy, 
and stiff. Reverent worship is robust and rich. It's heavenly and happy. It comes with great gravitas and gladness. Friends, week after week, we begin our worship with a moment of silent preparation. What's going on here? What are we doing? Practicing the rhythm of approach. Coming before God, the great consuming fire, ready to give him acceptable worship because in Christ we've received this kingdom and we are grateful and we are glad. Now with changed priorities, we come and we're more concerned to please him than to be pleased. We're more concerned to bless him than to be blessed. We desire to pursue reverence in worship more than seek after relevance in worship. This is the rhythm of approaching. Let us pray.